at the beginning, there's no other way to start building financial momentum than cutting back on expenses. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I have uh, now two-time guest Griffin Milks with me today. Griffin is um, an investor who's located in Gatineau and also a YouTuber and uh, financial what exactly? We could just call it financial uh, content creator on YouTube and investor, real estate investor. So yeah. Sure. Thanks again and, for having um, me. Two terms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you know, I, I guess the reason why I wanted to have you back on the show is because like last time we had a really very interesting off-camera chat after the interview and it made me think that like, you know, there's a topic that we really don't talk about a lot. I feel like on social media, on podcasts and stuff like that. And it's the lifestyle hit. And so maybe if we can just pick up where we left off, you know, let's maybe share the lifestyle hits that both of us took to become professional investors and to get where we are. Because I think very often people talk about success, but they don't often talk about the sacrifices and like the, you know, difficult decisions they made. Yeah, absolutely. So last time for anyone who had tuned in, we had talked about the difficulties, especially right now with purchasing that first rental and getting your foot in the door with like price points going crazy. Interest rates have also started climbing. So like affordability is quite difficult. And so especially at the beginning of your real estate career or really any type of, of uh, business, but since we're now speaking about real estate specifically, starting to get your foot in the door is you're probably going to have to make some sacrifices, have some lifestyle hits in order to buy something maybe outside of where you're living, uh, where it's you know astronomical price points in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, whatnot, in order to you know take a step back, then have two, three steps forward, and even more than that over the course of several decades as you you know start getting into the industry, start building some equity and some momentum in your business. So I know that's, as we had spoken about off camera last time, that's something that I've definitely experienced and you had also mentioned. So yeah, we can get into it for sure. Sure. So tell me like a little bit about uh, what are some of those early lifestyle hits that you took? Yeah. So first and foremost, it's going to be a time lifestyle hit. So time that maybe you were uh, putting elsewhere and you know, your social life or any other type of extracurricular activity, the reality is that if you want to start creating more value and wealth in your life, you're going to have to look at what's going on and look at, okay, maybe you're working a nine to five. Is that what's going to get you to the next level? Right. And usually what people don't have at the beginning is extra capital. And when you have a, extra amounts of capital, you can put that capital to work. But when you're starting out, usually you have pretty much nothing. So what you do have, though, is time on your hands, especially when you're younger. Maybe not if this is a realization when you're like 40 or let's say even 30, 40, 50, whatever. But if you're in your early 20s watching this, most of the time you're going to have you know all your evenings, all your weekends. So for me, that was definitely the first lifestyle hit where I've always known that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, business owner. I've had like several businesses from the time I was you know 17 still to now, most of which failed, but I was investing basically all my time after work. That was my nine to five. I used to work at the government. I'd come home and work a second job fully in order to try and get some momentum in my life and uh, get some extra capital so that I could then, yeah, start investing and um, yeah, start investing. So that's the first thing is going to be a time lifestyle hit that happened for me. And we can dig into that a bit more later potentially. And then the second thing was really just the fact that, you know, I come from, uh, 
good family. We lived in a nice neighborhood or whatnot. At the beginning though, when I moved out, it was either I start renting. Actually, that is something I did. So when we first moved out, my girlfriend and I, we rented a, an apartment downtown Montreal. It was almost 1700 bucks a month in retrospect, ridiculous, but you know, it was one of those first things that we wanted to try. And then not necessarily that we couldn't afford it, but it was like, okay, where, what's the next step from here? All right, are we gonna buy something in Montreal that's super expensive? I didn't necessarily know the market. So we came back to, to Ottawa Gatineau, but you're, you can't expect to go, you know, when you're in your early 20s with your entry-level job to go directly into maybe the house that you're, you grew up in, that type of house in those types of neighborhoods. So for us, we did some house hacking, which is a concept where essentially, I'm sure most of your viewers are aware of it, but you can either buy a property, maybe live in one of the units, uh, rent out other unit, one or two, if it's a duplex, triplex, that's what we ended up doing. Or if you want to take it to the next level, I know some people who like buy a house and then rent out rooms. That's not for me. We definitely like our space, but we did uh, live in a duplex for a while. And that was in a part of town that wasn't necessarily the best, right? Like it, it was difficult mentally to like adapt to that. And over time, eventually, as we again, like built up our businesses, we ended up moving from there into what's now just our house but that was definitely a huge lifestyle hit and uh it was different also you know living in a, an area that wasn't really um something i was familiar with let's say before that yeah yeah no I, and I, you know i think what uh, we discovered on the, you know our previous chat was like how similar those decisions were because as you were telling me the story about you know living in not the best part of town and like you know, not picking your forever home first and, you know, taking sort of a step down. Like I remembered, you know, back, I guess it was 15 years ago when I started this journey and it was the exact same thing. So, you know, I picked not great part of town and mm -hmm. I chose to live on the ground floor of my triplex. I actually did go next level and had a roommate for basically my first 10 years as an investor to really bring my housing overhead costs time. down as low as possible. And, you know, I can remember at that time, like most of my friends were kind of, you know, young professionals starting out, mm -hmm. enjoying the fruits of their, you know, relatively interesting salaries compared to when we were students. Absolutely. Um, nice condo, nice car, you know, being able to like flash a little bit more of the, some of those things that make you feel like you've arrived as an adult when I was driving my Honda Civic and like not living in the part of town where there's like prostitutes on the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, well, that's exactly it. You know, it's, it's going to be every aspect the the housing, the, the car, like you need to at the beginning, there's no other way to start building financial momentum than cutting back on expenses. Because this is something I speak about on my YouTube channel is like, in order to save more money, there's really just two things you can do. It's either cut back on expenses and or make more income. That's your going to be your savings rate. But the reality is that you can only cut down your expenses to a certain amount, right? Like at a certain point, you still need to pay for your housing, you still need to pay for food and stuff. So focusing on increasing income is usually where your time is best spent. That being said, Housing is by far the number one most expensive thing that uh, most people are ever going to pay for on a month to month basis. So if you're able to cut down uh, your living expenses by doing what you did, you know, renting out another room, I, did it go well or how, how was that? How was your experience? Yeah, I mean I think, you know, people have different characters on this. And I like, you know, as I tell like this story to various people, they're like, you know, Terry, how did you do that? Like, you know, I had I was mm -hmm. 38, I still had a roommate. <laughs> So, but for me, it was also a question that I just enjoyed that lifestyle. Like I was kind of like living in a busier house where there's a lot of different people and stuff going on. So like for me, yeah. it wasn't that much of a sacrifice, but the part of town was a sacrifice and the living 
amongst my tenants was a sacrifice because at one point I was managing like, you know, 50 student rentals and everybody knew exactly where I lived. So, you know, yeah. they could come and ring my doorbell. So like that was, that was a significant lifestyle hit. <laughs> yeah. So actually let's speak about that a bit more. So you were managing 50 student rentals. It wasn't just like regular long-term tenants. There were actually students renting out like bedrooms in the properties that you owned. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And, okay. So yeah, having like 50 people know exactly where you live, they can just go and ring and say, hey, can this or this or that be fixed? That could definitely be invasive to a certain extent. That was something that I also experienced and I found it was difficult actually living with tenants. You did it for a lot longer than me though, so kudos to you. But I think for most people like listening who are starting out, there are very few options as to how you can start getting into real estate. Like the price points are really high. That's not going to change. Like it's really not. I don't think price points have already come down significantly in most markets. And, you know, this is a debate for another day. But in the next two, three years, I think real estate price points are probably going to start climbing once again, like just from a plain macroeconomic supply and demand standpoint with immigrants coming in with the lack of, of housing. There's just no other way that I can, uh, in, in my opinion, I just think it's going to continue going up. And last week, I actually uh, interviewed a guy on my channel who's a big real estate investor as well. And he was saying the same thing. Like there's very few options for what people can do at the beginning if they want to start getting their foot in the door in real estate, right? So one of them is going to be either house hacking. You're going to have to leave your metropolitan area that maybe you're, you know, you grew up in downtown Toronto, but renting an apartment that's four grand a month is just unrealistic. And maybe you can pay for it. You can't, could pay for it, but you have absolutely nothing left over at, at the end of the day, right? Like building equity is where the most wealth is created for, for most Canadians, even just in a primary residence or one, two rental properties. So, you know, taking that lifestyle hit of maybe having to commute a bit more if you're able to actually uh, work from home even better and getting out of, of expensive markets. That's something we spoke about a lot last time is going into secondary markets and just saying, you know what, maybe it's going to be a couple of years, but having to uh, accept that reality. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. You know, for someone like me who started investing like a while ago, at that time price points were lower, and so like you know I was able to pull that together just by moving to a you know a not great part of Montreal. But I wonder, you know, starting out today, I feel like the bar has kind of gotten higher, especially for people who are younger. You know, and I think this is one of the other things that that came out of our conversation because we have like quite an age gap. I don't want to <laughs> put any sure. specific numbers, but like we probably have about a twenty year age gap between us. And for people who are starting out in their twenties, it's a different reality than for people who you know in their mid forties or like let's say late thirties are waking up to the fact that uh, having a professional job is not going to give you financial independence. And you know, I think like you said, people in your age bracket have time, and maybe they're able to make some of those housing sacrifices that become more difficult once you start having a family and the obligations Definitely. that go with that. Because like you know, at this point, moving to a not great part of town and having roommates like once you have a family, like that's not something I would necessarily consider doing at this time. So if those options are even more limited based on the narrative that you're depicting here, what would be something that if someone was say in their 40s, you would recommend for them if they're waking up realizing that, you know, yeah, they are working a job, they don't own anything, they're not building any type of financial momentum. What would be like one or two things that you think these individuals should focus on or could uh, like actionable items that they could do? Mm -hmm. Well, so I think one needs to realize that the equation is just different at different times of life, because when you're young, chances are you don't have too much capital. And the mm -hmm. network that you have probably also doesn't have that much capital. And so that 
puts you in a place where, you know, it's difficult to leverage your network and you maybe don't have any eggs in a basket that you could start applying to a different spot, let's say. And that's mm-hmm. like often the advantage of when you're getting into the game a bit later on is that you, your network of friends, so the people you went to school with, the people who, you know, share the same interests as you, chances are that they have money saved up or that they're at least in a position to qualify for a mortgage. So it means that in that sense, it's almost easier to start later on in life because all of those people that you're connected to via social media or whatever way mode of connection you might have with them, you just need to get them thinking about you as somebody who does real estate and has investment answers, and then they're going to be calling you. Whereas when you're younger, like in your mid twenties, it might be that your friend group is not in a position to start investing, or you're not in a position to be able to do joint ventures with them. And so you kind of have to wait for that network to mature. And, Mm -hmm. um, this is actually what I say to like some of, you know, my clients or like other brokers that, that I coach around me who are young. It's like, look, don't think that because the network around you is just not mature yet, that it's going to be impossible for you. Because yes, at a certain point, you're going to have to punch above your weight and like move into circles where people are maybe a little bit older, like build the credibility that those people are going to have confidence in you. But in 10 years time, you're going to be laughing because for 10 years, you will have been building that credibility. And as your various friends like start having financial assets at their disposition or whatever it is, it's going to be much easier to, to leverage that network. Yeah, I think that's a great point. A bit further on that, though. So someone who doesn't necessarily have an ex- experience, let's say someone who's 35, 40, right, doesn't have any experience is does have potentially a network, though, that they could leverage people who have their careers, they have, you know, some savings or whatnot. What would be your way, though, to convince someone even though you have no experience? Because that's something, for example, that I'm personally doing right now. I've been doing this for three and a bit years. I don't want to say there's imposter syndrome about going and raising capital, but it's only really now that I feel comfortable now that I have experience under my belt. And I also have a couple of people coming to me. But before that, you know, let's say someone who's 35, zero experience, they do have that network, but how could they go about leveraging it? Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, really, there's no, you got to get some knowledge. And mm-hmm. there's really, you know, two ways to acquire knowledge. One is through training and the other is through experience. And, you know, I don't want to tell people you got to go out and like buy a 15K coaching package. I don't think that's the right approach. I think there's like a great wealth of knowledge that's available uh, at low cost or almost free. But if you do end up paying, you know, whatever, a few thousand dollars for coaching on specific issues or from a program that you feel is is reputable, I've seen a lot of people do well with that. So I think getting some education is key. And I think then getting some sort of on the ground experience and, you know, be it shadowing existing investors or brokers as they go through their everyday or becoming a smaller partner with people who have more experience. 
And that as you, you know, sort of activate your network and get to know more people, it's not like you need to have 200K to get in on a deal. Like sometimes not the deal is, is missing 10, 15K in it. Yep. And if you have that money and that's what's necessary to close, you can, you know, get into like some sort of a partnership that will allow you to go through the motions a few times. And once you've gone through one or two, three transactions like that, all of a sudden you are going to know what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you're just investing, say, 10, 20, 30 grand, well, all of a sudden, depending on the relationship, you have with the joint venture partners, you can all of a sudden potentially shadow these people over the course of the project or uh, yeah, just that investment over time as you're optimizing it or, or what have you. So yeah, that's definitely a good idea. Even something I'm going to implement a bit more potentially. Let's speak about joint ventures more because I haven't ever done joint ventures with anyone outside of one main partner. What's been your experience with joint ventures having multiple different partners all at once? Can that get like tricky uh, over time, just having your capital spread out uh, amongst many different like partnerships or yeah, what, how, what has been your experience with joint ventures over time? Cause I think you've done quite a few, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, tricky. The first joint venture I ever did, I got my hands burnt pretty badly. And that was like, kind of like a bad divorce kept me like off the joint venture market for some time afterwards. And then uh, by now, like I've kind of, you know, my model is that I like to go through an extensive vetting process. And, you know, I'm a broker, I'm a real estate coach, I have a management business. And through these other, you know, sort of low value transaction entry points into my business, it allows me to build business relationships with people. And so like, it's not that people walk in off the street, and all of a sudden, I'm offering them a partnership. What happens is I will either, you know, help them by brokering a deal. I will manage a property of theirs. I will coach them for some time. And then it's going to become clear whether or not this is somebody who I want to involve myself with in a project. So I think that's like, I, you know, my vetting process is like quite extensive. I want to say it could take almost a year, you know, until I feel comfortable with someone enough. Absolutely. You're building trust and rapport with the person before through actual professional relationship to get uh, without having that like liability together, but you're actually working with them to be able to vet and see over time how they react. Because it's true, like over a couple of months, some things couldn't be uh, shown that could be, uh, you know, surfaced after a while. So yeah, that, that's definitely a good point. So right now, joint ventures, are they mostly on smaller buildings? Are they on larger buildings? I mean, it varies. Like, you know, my sweet spot is a kind of like mid-sized property. So like, you know, eight, 12 unit things, that kind of stuff. The price points are different depending on which market they're in. Mm-hmm. Then, I mean, so that's like, I, you know, sort of mentioned the, the vetting process a little bit. Then it's also a question of like, you know, really mapping out from a legal point of view and from a likelihood, very transparent, honest point of view. Like, look, we're making a time commitment. This project is supposed to take three years, five years till exit strategy. So we have to know what's our exit strategy. And we also need to have a rough idea of if something goes wrong along the way, what do we do, right? Like, how do we take this apart if, you know, God forbid a parent gets sick or we need to like pull our capital out? What, how are we going to deal with that? So like, you know, mapping out what happens when things go wrong. And then, I mean, from a fiscal point of view, you know, would it be easier maybe to just have one big partner? Probably that would make the, you know, the accounting and the administration aspect a little bit simpler. But at the same time, like this way, you're kind of, you know, you feel like I'm spreading the risk because there's a coaching aspect to my business. I also get to have 
you know, the happiness of seeing people succeed. And like, usually that ends up being how I build my joint ventures is like, often it's somebody who either has boring capacity or capital that they want to play with, but they don't have necessarily, you know, either the know-how or the confidence to do it on their own. And then because they know me, we're like, okay, we feel good about each other. Let's take the next step. And then it's like, okay, well now watch me optimize this building. And then they learn from me. Or else if they don't want to do it, then I can take on, you know, that kind of value add aspect and then build myself in a disproportionate side of the upside so that that then kind of becomes a, like a mutually beneficial arrangement. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like right now I'm asking you all the questions. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, that's uh, it. It's great. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> no, just because why not? You know, it's super interesting what you're saying. So lots of joint ventures with actual people that you've worked with professionally. And let's talk about like some of the optimization, because that's something that I've fallen in love with. It's like how I like creating value in my projects and how I like making the most money. So you just talked about the optimization and value add of buildings over like a four, five, six, seven year period. Do you mostly focus on like just burring properties and doing like aesthetic renovations, raising rents, or are you like even, are you focusing on any type of like smaller development or over time, like what has been your, your bread and butter for, mm -hmm. for these joint ventures? So I'm like really just a property manager. Like that's what I say to people. That's the, you know, the hat that I've worn through most of my career. Okay. And like, I'm really, you know, I, I do know basic maintenance and repairs, but like construction and development is kind of not my uh, favorite thing to do. So it's really just management. And, you know, by, because we're in Quebec, uh, there's this whole, you know, or, or like towel environment where, you know, we deal with the rental board a lot and yep. play with the rent increases and that there's this kind of whole game to play. And then what I end up doing, like my business model is really to focus on poorly managed properties and just through strict management and like raising the level of the property, mm -hmm. be it just with, you know, good management, cleanliness, dealing with some of the, the issues that the previous landlord wasn't able to deal with. There ends up being a bit of natural turnover because very often those problems are because of specific, you know, people who are creating issues. And then that allows you to up the value of the building, up the rents, re-rent some of the units that turn over. And then that ends up uh, being a good business model. Yeah. And being a property manager. So I honestly kudos to you because our property manager is an absolute legend and without them and their team it would just be it would make it so much harder to run a property uh just a rental portfolio so in your joint ventures like do you actually go in and potentially because i'm going back to i'm thinking back to the person who might not have the capital but who has you know the time or the experience and could leverage their network someone property management to me is just huge value right and you could easily just potentially pay someone to do it but if you maybe present yourself to your network and say i'll just manage the entire thing and you can be more of a silent partner have you ever done that where you maybe will go and get more equity in the deal but you manage the whole thing or maybe you just don't put any capital i mean into the deal and you're able to um to therefore get into a property with a lot less capital than maybe these other partners that would be putting higher capital into the deal Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty much exactly it. Like, really, when I build my deals, I don't ever sell the property management for free. If my firm is going to, because at this point, like I have, you know, a small property management company, if my company is going to end up doing some management, I make sure that we bill the property. And we always build in when I do my financial modeling, I always build in a management fee. And then it means that if ever you know, mm. I need, if it's in a secondary market and it's too far away, or if ever I need to divide that up, because sometimes I just keep the bookkeeping and leave the on-site to someone else. It allows me to have that money in the budget to uh, delegate, really. But, you know, my role in the joint ventures end up managing the manager. 
because about half the portfolio that we have now is in um, Trois-Rivières, which is an hour and a half out of Montreal. So obviously I'm not managing those properties on the ground, For but sure. I'm definitely masterminding, right? Like it's me who's making the game plan. What are we doing with what specific property? Do we need to open rental board files? I'm the one who handles that. And um, I don't charge the partnership for that. That ends up being my value add. And yes, it, to, to answer your question, that does end up when I call it upside, right? Like it, I then end up paying myself out with equity at the time of the exit strategy. Yeah. So throughout the course of the joint venture, anyways, you're able to to cover your costs at a bare minimum for, for all of that aspect of it. Yeah. That makes total sense. And do you find over time though, being a property manager, cause I know ours, like they were a partnership and then over time, one of them ended up leaving. It was just too intense dealing with, as you were saying, it is, it's like a full-time job dealing, opening files at the Régie du Logement and all that, like how difficult has that been to um, basically scale a rental, uh, not a rental property, but a management portfolio, essentially, because I'm assuming you have yeah. hundreds of units under under management. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like to tell the truth is it now becomes sort of more the mastermind, right? Like I do have, you know, a small team here, but like we're not man fully managing all the units that I own. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so we've hired other management companies who do part of the work. How did I manage, you know, I think when, you know, I was, I think 100 and whatever, 50 units was the highest that I ever had under management at one time. And like, yes, it was definitely, you know, draining and, uh, and took a lot of energy, but I did also write the book Mindful Landlord which really details like the strategies that you can put in place as a property manager or as an investor who does your own investing to make sure that it doesn't eat you alive. And, you know, just managing the biggest one almost is managing communication, right? Like my, I'm always making phone calls with no caller ID. I do not text my tenants. They don't have access to me 24 seven. And that allows me just that in itself allows me to deal with problems when I want to deal with them. Oh yeah. It gives you way more peace of mind. Like I was at dinner the other day, even just with a realtor, which you said, you're also a realtor. His phone was going off every two minutes. It was like, man, I, and it was like 8 PM. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely a very hands-on business, but as someone who wants to get in at the beginning though, I guess we could go back to the, the conversation uh, that we're, we're having at the beginning, like someone who wants to get in one, but he's going to potentially have to make those sacrifices. So I think we, we actually did kind of go around some of the sacrifices that would need to be done. At the end of the day, there's just really not much. I don't think that can really be done other than just sucking it up and having to like leave uh, an expensive market, downgrading maybe your lifestyle temporarily and uh, working on also a side hustle. Cause a lot of people want to make real estate their full-time gig, especially at the beginning when I've seen this and people who consume my content who, who have messaged me think that after like a little bit, you'll be full-time real estate investor. It's just so not the case, you know, like even as a difference, well, for me, uh, my, my interpretation of it, the real estate business versus even my YouTube business, it takes so much more time to create income and wealth through real estate, even though it's more of a clear cut path than another type of business. So, you know, keeping your nine to five, being able to qualify for loans is going to be one of the best things at the beginning, in my opinion, especially if you're again in your early twenties and then also working at just increasing your income and showing like lenders and stuff that you have other income sources to cover loans potentially because that majorly shot me in the foot when I quit my job. Like truth be told for a year and a half, almost impossible to get any type of loans, had to go with expensive B lenders, things of that nature. So setting yourself up at the beginning to have that stable source of income and being able to show like lenders that you can get that, that first deal or whatnot could be one of the best things as well. I think probably. Yeah.
Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, what I call like the time variable, right? And I think if you think about this, like you have to allow things to accumulate, right? Just like compound interest works over time, real estate builds equity over time. And, mm -hmm. you know, I always like to use the diet analogy, but if I start eating 100 calories less a day, am I going to lose 20 pounds tomorrow? No. Am I going to lose 20 pounds in a year? Yes. So it's like, even though you're making those incremental decisions every single day, you have to wait and you have the patience to allow the big gains to accrue. I think that's the first thing. I think then the second thing, you know, when, when we're talking about lifestyle hit, I did want to just like add kind of one anecdote. You know, I was ha having a conversation with somebody who wanted to get into investing and they were just telling me about how they moved into their uh, first new apartment and they didn't have any appliances and they went out and bought like $10,000 worth of <laughs> new appliances. And I was like, mm -hmm. what are you doing? Return those things immediately. Like you can get four appliances secondhand for like less than a grand like what are you doing and mm -hmm. then we kind of proceeded to have a little argument but yeah i want to have the new stuff and a da 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 and it's understandable but if you really want to do it you got to do it you know yeah. 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 And you got to, like you said, downgrade your lifestyle, right? Like it's not only about time sacrifices and housing sacrifices. It's also about like those, you know, brand new shiny things that maybe we all covet in some way, but it's to delay gratification and to kick that can down the road. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what you said about the, uh, you know, time for a portfolio to gain momentum and gain equity, that is just so spot on. And even, you know, myself, I lose sight of that sometimes spend like four years Sure, we've got active projects on the go, but most of like wealth and real estate, and you can probably chime in way more than me because you've had buildings for a lot longer. Most of that equity and the wealth you're going to be creating in real estate is through just holding assets long term, right? And just before this call, I was over at my grandma's house and one of her friends has like hundreds of millions in assets under management in her family portfolio. And, you know, she's like 70 and it was two generations ago that they started that portfolio, 75 years of investing. You know, think of how long that is in order to gain massive, massive, massive levels of momentum, of financial momentum. So at the beginning, you can start just with one, two, three little buildings. After 10, 15 years, you'll probably have hundreds of thousands, yeah, if not millions, depending on the area you're in, of equity in, that, in those buildings that you can then choose to maybe refinance when rates inevitably go lower. During 2020, the amount of wealth that was created through people just refinancing buildings that they've been paying down for years and pulling out millions of dollars from their portfolio and going and buying more and just building up a ton of uh, a ton of momentum. That's just something that I'm like keeping my eye on for the next you know 15, 20 years mm -hmm. as you you acquire assets. So even just starting with a house that you can actually afford though, not going out and buying the most expensive thing and maybe buying one small property with a joint venture. It might not seem like a lot right now, but at the, like at the beginning, but over time, it's really going to uh, make a massive shift between someone who chose to just not buy any rental property, not take action and just buy the most expensive house they could potentially with super expensive appliances, you know, and yeah. not have any money left over to invest. But like, it's really hard to conceptualize that when you want it all now. Yeah. And I'm, as I'm saying this, like, I need to also remember that, you know, it's so easy, especially now with online, like everything just looks like it happens overnight. And it's like, it just doesn't, you know? And yeah. yeah so, yeah, I mean, that's going to actually be my last question for you is just about like the, you know, the online ecosystem. But before that, I want to just, you know, offer you some words of encouragement and tell you anecdotally. So, you know, when I started, I, I started with three triplexes, each of them worth about 300 K. And nice. after 10 years, 
I was financially independent with those three triplexes and it had turned into 3 million. It's amazing. So 10 yeah. years, like the only thing that happened there was 10 years. I didn't really do anything. I didn't optimize. It didn't work. It was just 10 years of time. Exactly. But I think it's really hard for people to actually like imagine that and, and think it's realize that this is actually like factual, just basic finance. Like in Canada right now, let's say a triplex in Montreal, how much goes for how much? 1.2, let's say. I yeah, don't know. a million about. And it was 300K 10 years ago. Well, it's hard to believe that. What is that? That's like a 3x, 300% gain ish. It's hard to believe that in 10, 20 years, those same triplexes are probably going to be worth two, $3 million you know, but they just will, you know, it's the same thing that like my grandparents built a house for 50 grand that sold for over a million. Like it's just, that's how inflation works. And over time materials go up in price, the cost of everything goes up. So um, yeah, you can, you can really have financial independence with just a few buildings. The fact that you had three and just that was able to in 10 years provide financial events is so uh, it's super motivating. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's, I mean, and it should be, and it should be. But let me, we're, we're kind of, uh, you know, a bit pushed for time, but I wanted to ask you one more question since you're, you know, a YouTuber, that's, uh, you know, one of your businesses. And mm -hmm. we are very aware, I think, especially maybe I would almost say more for younger people, the influence of the online world in a sense of, you know, instant gratification and this, uh, you know, accentuating imposter syndrome, really, because I think mm -hmm. when people do start to have some success, they are not showing all the difficult things that happen it happen. And there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of eyes are on the few successful people. Like, I wonder what you think can be a good way to guard your mindset and expectations against some of the noise that's out there on social media. Yeah, so this is something that as a social media consumer is probably even more so the case, but even as a creator, uh, I need to remind myself of all the time because 99% of things that are posted online are just the highlight reels, the wins, the, you know, and that can be really, it can be motivating for a lot of people, but it can also be very difficult where you're just consuming this content and being like, man, I suck. I don't have anything going for me. You know, I'm not making enough money because when you go online, like algorithms are made to show you stuff that people want to consume like it's just this big vicious circle like as people are consuming more content uh certain types of content then it's going to show that to more and more and more people right and usually what works on the internet is polarizing content and so in the personal finance and investing space that's usually the 23 year old who apparently is making 500k a month drop shipping alibaba toys right but the reality is that like not many people are, are doing that. And just because people are actually showing that doesn't mean that it's true behind the scenes, right? Like even as a creator myself, like I'm not going and usually making content saying, Hey, and actually I've started trying to do this a lot more, but Hey, I lost 40 grand in this building doing X, Y, Z, you know, usually people aren't going to share that stuff. They're just sharing the wins. So you need to really take everything you see on the internet with a grain of salt and just like try to try to stick to what you can control really and uh try to yeah tune out all the noise because most of it is noise like i take sabbaticals from social media where i'll turn it all off and, and delete instagram because even myself knowing that it's very fake a lot of it, it it can get to you you know it can get to you especially young people now that grew up with cell phones like you know social media addiction is totally real uh, i've seen it myself and sometimes you just need to tune it all out because kind of went off track there but the initial question was how can someone like put up walls essentially and yeah 
I mean, or like, what's the best way to, you know, act despite that? And I, I mean, I do, I don't think you went off track. I think you were actually, you know, quite on track mm-hmm. with, with what you're saying that it's easy to, to get distracted. But I think I also want to just add something, you know, like uh, I, you know, was having a discussion way back when I was in university about the, the sitcom Friends, right? And like, basically, they said that the sitcom Friends is like completely fake in the sense that with the jobs that the friends are supposed to have, there's no way they could live in those apartments. There's no way they could yeah. afford those clothes. Yeah. And so it's as if there's this, like, it's from a different era where the reference was TV, but like, it's the same thing. If you're constantly being bombarded with these equations that kind of don't add up where you think everyone's living this balling lifestyle while you're house hacking and buying secondhand appliances. <laughs> mm, and you think you're doing something wrong. Exactly. But yeah, but another thing that we need to, to realize and people, a lot of people don't realize this, right? Is that what did people consume 20 years ago media-wise? TV mostly, right? So you're watching TV those are television networks and how does a television network live and survive through advertising now it's the exact same thing it's just democratized the tv network sort of concept where anyone can have their own mini tv network i don't care what anyone says over years of doing this you would not make content because you do it as well and you know how time consuming it is no one would make content if it wasn't if there wasn't a monetary you know, agenda behind the scenes. You might start off and and want to genuinely help people. And that is why I started making content. But at the end of the day, like no one's going to do 50 hours a week of social media for free forever. Right. And so where I'm going with this is that people make content. Most content creators, especially in the finance niche, are making content as a business. Right. And so it's a lot more lucrative to usually just show the wins because that's what people want to see. But over time that can really translate over into a false narrative of like everyone's just bawling out 24 seven. And it's just not the case. You know, it's really not the case. A lot of my friends who are also content creators go through many periods of, you know, ups and downs, mental ups and downs, depression and stuff on and off of YouTube. You need to really just take everything you see online with a grain of salt. And like, sometimes when you think you have no momentum, it's just not the case. If you're like working every day at something, then over time, that's really going to compound. And um, in terms of real estate, like back to that, if you like work every day at a business and or your job and you're saving money, and then you buy one building, even if it's one building every two, three years, you know, when you're 50, you'll have like 10 buildings, you'll be a multimillionaire. It's just the process. It just really is, you know, so and learn learn to love the process. <laughs> it's hard. Like realistically like saying that, it's hard. It is sometimes when you're like in the thick of it, you know, and you're living in the ghetto and like it sucks. It really does. But unless you like come from money, there's no other way that you can get there but to make sacrifices. It's like harsh and really simplistic, but I genuinely believe that. Yeah. There's nothing you can do other than just work your ass off and go and take lifestyle hits at the beginning to build that momentum. Like yeah. there's no other way. I don't think. Do you agree? (laughs) No, Griffin, I like, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And uh, you know, what, what I found interesting also was like that across whatever, or the 20 year age spread that we have, we have very similar stories finally. And that, that means that it was true 20 years ago. It's still true today. And probably 20 years from now, it's still going to be true. Probably will be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're just, so we're just running out of time here. Um, I want to thank you really for having this second conversation, which actually to me was kind of more interesting than the first. (laughs) Yeah, Um, it was awesome. Yeah, it was great. And uh, it's there. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to learn more about what you do? 
Instagram and YouTube really are the main platforms. Just my name, Griffin Milks. I'll be the the first hit. Actually, I might not be the first hit. There's so many freaking fake accounts on Instagram. It is a part-time job trying to get away from them, but just Griffin Milks, no extra S's, no extra L's. Griffin Milks, you can find me there. Instagram and YouTube. All right. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.